Our good friends at Johnio welcome you to this episode. Now, the iconic Johnio clothing brand logo of the surfer and his longboard first caught my eye several years ago, but it's the signature Johnio style where West Coast meets East Coast prep that truly changed the game for me, and I've been wearing Johnio ever since. And now our listeners can use promo code RICHTAKE at checkout for 20% off your first order at johnny-o.com. That's 20% off the regular price at johnny-o.com. Use the promo code RICHTAKE at checkout for 20% off your first order. Exploring the impact of sports. Welcome Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Having conversations and hearing personal stories from those who have been impacted built and inspired by the role of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. This is episode 107. Thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Measuring success in life is oftentimes hard because so many times we focus on the wrong target. And our guest this episode, Bill Hancock, has had the fortunate opportunity of understanding his success through the gifts in life during both good times and bad times. Bill has achieved a unique trifecta at the highest level of intercollegiate athletics, where he served as the first full-time director of the NCAA Final Four, the first executive director of the Bowl Championship Series, and the first executive director of the college football playoff, where he still serves today. His five-decade career began in 1971 at the University of Oklahoma when he became Assistant Sports Information Director, and that would eventually lead him to be inducted into the Halls of Fame of the State of Oklahoma, the College Sports Information Directors, and the All-College Basketball Classic. He's also written two books, and his memoir about his cross-country bicycle journey that he undertook in the aftermath of his son's death, Riding with the Blue Moth, was among the top sports books after its release in 2005. In his second book, This One Day in Hobart, pays tribute to his hometown in Oklahoma. Here's episode 107 with Bill Hancock. Bill, thank you so much. I greatly appreciate you inviting me to the college football playoff offices. I mean, I'm fascinated to be sitting in here, so thank you so much. It's an honor. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Rich. Great to be with you. Yes, sir. Now, I'll go ahead and just get it right out in the open, just the elephant in the room. How many times during the week do you have people coming up to you saying, hey, Bill, I've got the solution for the college football playoff system? (laughs) The number of people who reach out about format, uh, officiating, (laughs) is reflective of the passion for the game. (laughs) And there's so much passion for our game all around the country. And I know before I came here, I was probably would have been in the same position of saying, have you thought about this, adding a ninth official or changing the sights of the games or whatever? So I get that. And I, and I always enjoy hearing from people who have new ideas. But I have to tell you this, the college football playoff is extremely popular. Um, people are delighted that we, that we do have a playoff system, uh, that we do have a bracket and um, it, it's just the first five years have been way better even than I expected. I had high expectations for the event, and they've been exceeded. And so what were your expectations then? 
Well, we, we started we started in the summer of 2012 when the commissioners created the event, and our first game was going to be in December in January of 2015. So we really had two and a half years to get ready, and hire a staff, get an office, get procedures. So now is that a compressed timeline that's in a, your standpoint? That's a compressed timeline. Yeah, that's a compressed timeline. But we made it work, and um, hiring the staff was was great fun. Uh, we found early on that the passion for the game. <laughs> translated into the passion of people who want to work here yes, and who say, I love college football. I want to be involved in it 24-7. And, you know, I'm the guy that gets to be involved in it 24-7. <laughs> it's a dream come true. Why do you think people love college football so much? And I'm talking just from the fan perspective. <clears throat> it's because they own it. It's their team. It's their uh, enterprise. It, it's a it's a public trust. It's like Yosemite. <laughs> Everybody owns it and, and and is proud of it, and wants to go there and touch it and feel it. And uh, but but it really that that's the way it is nationally, and the way it comes down locally is this is my team. This was my daddy's team. This was my grandmother's team, and we all gather around the TV to watch on Saturday afternoon. That's why this game is so popular, is because it, it, it's, it's a part of the DNA of the fans. It is a personal connection for so many people. <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't think there's many personal connections like, like sports, and in the sports world, not many like college football, that you can say, my granddad used to go, and this is where he sat. This is the tree that he sat under for his tailgate you know, back in 1957. And that's something that we have to cherish. We do cherish it. We all do. All of us in this industry cherish that personal con personal connection. Well, obviously you're involved in helping people <clears throat> cherish those memories. So what about you in terms of memories? Go back down memory lane for you. When did you first have this personal connection and fall in love with sports and college football? Yeah, for me it was, first of all, baseball when I was a child in the mid-50s. And right after that, college football. Um, college, my, I grew up in Oklahoma, and my dad had gone to Missouri, and so he was a Missouri fan, but we went to Oklahoma games. And um, I, I was at the 1957 Nebraska, um, excuse me, Notre Dame-Oklahoma game when Notre Dame ended Oklahoma's 47-game winning streak. Uh, I was seven years old, <laughs> and I remember well, all I remember about it was a very cold day, and I remember people crying after the game. <laughs> That's that personal connection. That's again. the personal connection. So I grew up in an Oklahoma family, and although I, I started a school at Dartmouth in New Hampshire, wound up finishing at Oklahoma, and um, and the baseball part was we had a we had a town team semi-pro when I was a little little. And then American Legion and my happiest childhood times were at the baseball games, getting to be the bat boy, getting to be the kid that posted the numbers on the scoreboard in, in center field. And that is old school. And that's old school. <laughs> and that's that. those are my, fav my favorite childhood memories really were baseball followed by college football. Now, how did you get to Dartmouth then from Oklahoma? Well, I was a decent student in high school, but more so I was from a small town. And uh, colleges had quota systems back then, and I just applied at Dartmouth and Stanford and Rice and, and Oklahoma kind of as a plan B, and not knowing if I'd get in any of them, but they, Dartmouth sent a guy to interview me, and um, 
enjoyed my time there, but I was in love with a little girl back in Oklahoma. <laughs> so, so I left Dartmouth to go back, and uh, she's still living with me after 50 years. So oh, well, it, there it, you it go. Congratulations, out. yes. Yeah, it all worked out. So because I applied at Oklahoma and certainly gotten in there, then I, I just wound up going, uh, going to school there. And at that time, has, was journal, when you were growing up as well, falling in love with sports, was journalism something that you had a passion for also? Yeah, it was. My dad owned a small-town newspaper, and so I read, I read, I read everything I could get my hands on, particularly sports books. Chip Hilton, um, the Bobsy Twins was another one of my favorites. <laughs> and so reading a lot uh, led me to the paper, and I always had a job at my dad's paper. I got my first paper route as a riding my bicycle, throwing papers on the porches uh, in, in really kind of Norman Rockwell, America. Yeah. You're a true paper boy. Uh, yeah, I was a paper boy. I was starting when I was 11 and uh, loved it, loved delivering the papers, hated collecting. Hated, <laughs> I hated to knock on that door and say, Miss Smith, you owe me 25 cents for this week. Um, mm -hmm. But I loved delivering papers. And the best promotion I ever had in my life was I was about 14 and my dad said, came to me and said, you know, the, the janitor has graduated from high school, and I want you to take over being the janitor, and you can give up your paper route. And uh, my goodness, I loved it. <laughs> I got to work indoors. I didn't have to go out in the summer heat. No collecting. And no more collecting, and it was just sweeping out and, and doing the things you used to do in an old hot type newspaper. And then I started writing a column when I was a sophomore in high school, made every mistake that a columnist could ever make offended people not knowing what I was doing, <laughs> but uh, because of being a reader and then learning to write at an early age, um, that's helped me a lot in my life. Do you remember your first column? Uh, wrote about uh, American Legion baseball. Yeah. Yeah. 1966, I believe it was. And didn't offend anybody with the first column, but, but <laughs> later on did. And my dad was great because he didn't, he didn't ever talk to me about what I was writing. He was smart enough to know that I would hear from the readers. So he didn't have to coach me up. He knew that even back then, pre-social media and pre the way people get attacked, reporters get attacked now by, the, by readers, uh, he knew I would hear from people when I made mistakes. And so he let me make my mistakes. And how did you feel then the first time you did offend somebody and oh, you heard about it? I was horrified. I was horrified. I thought, what an idiot I am. How could I have done that? The person is right. You know, how do I make it up to them? And usually when I would ask them how to make it up to them, usually they'd say, well, no, don't, don't run a correction. Just let it go. You know, but yeah. You, and you were just, these people that, I mean, you would see in town? Yeah. Oh, yeah. People I'd see. And I just, I, it was some, I would do something thoughtless. Um, and a coach, I remember writing, a, a, I'm trying to recall some, something. Our team was the Kiowas. Our, our county was Kiowa County. And Kiowas lose to Elk City in error comedy. So, you know, the team made six errors. Well, those were kids. They were my peers, really, and they were trying. And the kids, the players would get on me. And you just, you just learn. You learn how to treat people. And, and you learn how to say, I made a mistake. Don't blame it on somebody else. Don't blame it on your assistant or the dog ate my homework. Just say, Ted Gummit, I messed up. I'm sorry. <laughs> And I'll try to do better, but read the paper tomorrow, and I'll probably mess up again tomorrow. Yes, keep reading, though. Yeah. That was the key. That's right. right. Keep reading. Was sports, though, was that what you wanted to do and from a journalistic standpoint? You wanted to 
you know, gravitate towards being Prob- a sports writer? Probably, yeah. Like a lot of kids, I wanted to do a lot of different things when I was in high school. For a while, uh, I, was a, I was a musician. I was not a great athlete, but I was a musician. And for a while, I wanted to be America's next great classical pianist. Uh, there was a pianist named Van Cliburn who was actually here in Fort Worth. And I wanted to grow up and be the next Van Cliburn. I was pretty good. I loved Chopin and Beethoven and Bach and Mozart. And, and so for a while, I wanted to do that. And then I realized I didn't have the quite the talent or the single-mindedness to do that, but always had journalism and writing as being sort of in the background for me. No, no matter what else I might have wanted to try, I think I kept coming back to my roots as a journalist and, and a writer. Yeah. And then were you taking lessons from your mom? No, my mom was a teacher, but I didn't take lessons from her. I took from other people in town. Well, why didn't you take from your mom? Yeah. It's, it's right there convenient. Yeah, right? it would, would have been too big a conflict. <laughs> you know, your moms have to deal, have to do enough things with their kids, uh, much less make them do their practicing and, and teach them. So she how, was often, a, how, she was a, how often do you play the piano today? I don't play much anymore. I got where I couldn't play in front of people. I got this phobia that was really hard to explain but I got too nervous playing in front of people. So I'll play once a week or so. When did that happen? When did this phobia happen? Oh, probably 25 years ago, maybe. I don't, I don't know what led to it, but uh, so now I can, I, I play by myself and just for my own enjoyment. And so what would happen? Would you just freeze up and I was always, play? Any, no matter what I had to do in some contest or playing even at church, I would get really, really nervous. And uh, I think the nervousness, for whatever reason, it just kept growing and manifested itself in this like, I can't play. There's other people there. Plus, you kind of lose confidence when you don't use it enough. That's right. Yeah. It's definitely one of those things that you've got to keep playing and playing to maintain that confidence. And so for me, it was all the time. It was sports and reading and music. That's and that's what I was interested in. Yeah. And then graduate Oklahoma. And then what's your next thought, what's my, what's my job going to be? Well, I fell into a job in the athletic department after my junior year in college. Um, a position opened up in the sports information office, and they offered it to me, and I said, wait, I don't have my degree yet. <laughs> Time out. <laughs> yeah. And they said, we know, but you only need six hours. They, somebody in the athletic department had done the research, and uh, this was at the start of my senior year, and, and they said, we'll pay your tuition for the last six hours, and you, you'll work full-time, and you'll go to school at night. And it was I remember it was like $138 that the university was going to pay of my tuition. And I thought, that's amazing. <laughs> so I took the job, and um, it happened to be a great football season for Oklahoma. 1971 was an undefeated uh, wishbone team that wound up losing to Nebraska in the great Thanksgiving game, 35-31, and then... Uh, went on and, and whipped uh, Auburn in the Sugar Bowl. So it was a great season to begin a, a career. And yeah, it was beautiful timing. Yeah, great timing. And I, I have friends that I still, you know, talk to from that team and from that era a long time ago now. But a really special fall and a special fall for a for a kid. I was 20 when I started my full time job at the university. So that's amazing. A special time. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and, and we played Clemson the next year. Um, Bobby Johnson, now my yes. friend, was on the team for Clemson, and he remembers that Oklahoma won 52-3. to I, I didn't remember the <laughs> score, but Bobby said he had just never seen anything like the athletes that Oklahoma had back then. That was a different – that yeah. was – those teams in the 70s, that was a different caliber of college football teams for yeah. Oklahoma. That, that is for certain. And did you fall in love with your role? Yeah, initially? I, liked, I, I, really, I really enjoyed it. I liked, uh, I liked the writing, and I liked keeping stats. 
And of course, that's not a part of really sports information anymore. They do they do so many different things other than that. But that's the part I liked about it. Uh, I did like the games, but you know, people tend to say they want to get into college athletics for the games, and the games are one tenth of one percent of what we do. You know, it's all. And so, what else were your role? What um, else were you doing in your role? I, I, say. I, I managed all the communications in the department for. Uh, basketball, baseball, indoor track and field, outdoor track and field, tennis, golf. So I really did all of that. We had our the the number one SID at the time did the football, but I was you know we, we all we all jumped on board during football season. Uh, but it was great to work with all those other sports. Uh, as as a, having grown up as a baseball guy, I gravitated to baseball in the, in the, in the, at school. Um, just as a fan and a follower, and, and then to be able to be the publicist for the baseball team was really cool. How difficult was it to uh, have to sometimes rein in Barry Switzer? <laughs> we, we started with Chuck Fairbanks, was the head coach when I started, and Chuck was a cold and calculating, um, he, play, he was a Michigan State guy, kind of out of his element in Oklahoma, but a brilliant coach and a great leader, and uh I saw him about 30 years later, and when, by, the, by this time he had become a kind of a stooped older gentleman. And I went up and introduced myself and said, I, say, I said, Coach, you're not going to remember me, but I'm so-and-so. And he said he was very warm and humble and said, of course I remember you. You were one of the best young people we had around. And, and then the transfer, transformation from Fairbanks to Switzer was astounding because we went from this cold uh, analytical calculating uh, Fairbanks to the happy-go-lucky Switzer who never never met a stranger, <laughs> and uh, great leaders, both of them, and uh, Barry was great to work with. His staff was great. Barry's the best single people person I've ever met. Uh, he will never forget you. He makes you feel special still to this day when you see him. Uh, he's remarkable. I'm told that Bill Clinton had that same kind of skill with people, uh, and it's a, it's a gift. It is it's, a gift. It's a rare gift, and, and Barry had it. Barry can remember every player that ever played for him, and he could go into find their house today, and if their mom's still living, he'd go talk to the mom and talk about old times, and it's a gift. It is a gift, and I'm so jealous of that because I've had situations where I've forgotten if I've washed my hair while I'm <laughs> yeah. in the shower. <laughs> I'm like, did I just put shampoo in my hair or not? Yeah. So I'm jealous of those people that can have that type of memory to recall people yeah, and Barry, their names. Barry was, Barry was great. We had a basketball coach named John McLeod. John went from Oklahoma to the of Phoenix course. Suns and had a nice career there. Uh, his best recruiter at Oklahoma was Alvin Adams, who went on to be NBA uh, Rookie of the Year. I still see, see Alvin occasionally. Alvin is the uh, GM of the arena, general manager of the arena where the Suns play. A really unusual for a star NBA player to go and become an arena manager. And that was the path that Alvin Adams chose for himself. So now, why did you decide to get out of being a sports information director? Well, my father passed away, and my brother and I inherited the family newspaper. And um, I, my brother was, a, was older, so he was kind of the leader in, in, in our partnership. But I went back to my hometown, town of 4,000, uh, called Hobart, Oklahoma, and worked with my brother and put out the newspaper. So I was the editor and um, uh, wrote. We we had we really covered sports extremely well <laughs> in our, in our paper. So stayed there for four years, loved it. 
but you could tell in a small town that the the, the paper was going to struggle. Businesses are going to struggle in a small town. And in what year in was the this? Great Plains? This was seventy four to seventy eight, and uh, you could just see the future wasn't going to be great for his family and mine to both have the newspaper. So I got a call from Chuck Ninus, who was running the Big Eight Conf- commissioner of the Big Eight Conference, who said. Our, our communications job's open, and we'd like for you to come up and take it. And I was 27, and I said, yeah, I'll do it. So left a real hard decision I was going to ask you that. Leaving the legacy the of the newspaper, the family business, business the roots. Um, but it was an opportunity that I knew was, was going to be really great for our family. So left our hometown and uh, went to Kansas City to work for the Big A, where I stayed 11 years. Now, how did your brother take it? that you were going to be moving on. He was disappointed. Yeah, it was a hard thing for me to tell him that I, I needed to go. And uh, But he was a big sports fan, too. And uh, he, he hired, brought in somebody to replace me, not in an ownership role, but in, on the news side role and doing the things I was doing. And uh, he, he had a nice career still running the paper. And he passed away a few years ago. And now my nephew, his son, is operating the paper still. Oh, so it is still So, yeah, great. still in the family. And, and uh, I'm, I'm proud of that. Of course. Now that is a, a true legacy then. For yeah. I'm sure that it's yeah. still going. And we love our little hometown. We just love everything about it. And I'm, I talk about the, the town every chance I get because it was such a great place to grow up. And yeah. With, how often do you go back? People. My sister-in-law still living. She'll be 90. She's 90 actually. And so I go to visit her as often as I can. Oh, two, two or three times a year is all, but I stay in very close contact with people there. Yeah. And so why did you write a book about your hometown. Well, there's a lot of history written in the world. I'm, I'm also a historian. I'm a history buff. So in addition to the music and sports and reading, uh, history is important to me. And when I when I read, I prefer to read histories. Uh, just finished the rise and fall of the Third Reich, for example, <laughs> 1,200 pages of the, the most compelling story in, in 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 I don't know I don't know when maybe forever. Phenomenal. Um, book about a terrible time in Europe, of course. Um, but people, so people write histories about the Third Reich and they write histories about Hamilton and John Adams and and that, but people don't write histories about small towns. And it occurred to me that if somebody doesn't write it down, it'll be lost. Yeah. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to I'm going to write it down. I'm going to, I'm going to write a book and, and make sure that this is out there for future generations come and look at and remember their small town. And so, yeah, that, that's, that, that's a role that I've just assumed as kind of a, an avocation is the history of our, of our small town. And was it an easy process for you? Oh, yeah. yeah labor of love. My, dad had, my dad's family had moved there uh, right around statehood time in Oklahoma in the early 1900s. So I had a lot of information that my dad had, had told me. Of course, I'm kicking myself for not having interviewed my dad and <laughs> yes. written more of it down. And but then the resolution of that is okay. You can't bring it. You can't bring him back to interview him. But you can write it down so people in the future won't kick themselves. That's right. For not having talked to Bill about the history of Hobart. Um, so it's just a little niche, and I think it's an important one. Of course. Well, another little niche that you have, all of these other things that you do is. You're somewhat of an endurance type of athlete guy. You run marathons, you bike across the country. So I'm just fascinated by especially the biking across the country. How yeah. did all of that come about? Well, it was for me, I have to go back to starting to, to my running career. 
was as a non-athlete working in the athletic department, at the time you were, you were a bit of an outsider because everybody was an athlete. All the coaches had been athletes. Of course, all the players were athletes and many of the staff. And one of the coaches, John McLeod, actually, the basketball coach, said, you know, Bill, you're not an athlete, but you can do this. You can run. So come running with me at lunchtime instead of eating lunch. And so this, I'm, I'm 21 years old by this time, and the head coach says, come run with me. Come do anything with me. And you're going to so do it. I'm going to do it. And it turned into just a love of running, which turned into 15 marathons for me. And That's amazing. Uh, I ran a 306, which is a pretty good time for a non-athlete in a marathon. That's a very and, good time. And I just decided, you know, one time, one day I decided I'm having a little knee trouble. And so let me see if I can take up bicycling. So I did, did that. And then we had a tragedy in our family, which you may, you may be going to ask me about this in a second. But the tragedy, which we lost our son in a plane crash, but the tragedy did two things for me. One is it, it opened my eyes to the fact that we have to live our dreams while we can. It, it's a cliche, but life is precious and too short. So, hey, go do this. If you have a dream, go do it. And uh, the second thing was I was looking for some way to get back to normal after the tragedy. And normal for me had been endurance sports. I'd, I'd been a, a backpacker, and a, a, a hiked Rimmer Rim in the Grand Canyon twice. And, and so it was, endurance sports was important to me and to get back to normal after the, after the tragedy. Returning to my kind of roots as an endurance sports athlete was important. So I just, those, those two things. And I said, I'm going to see if I can ride my bike across the country. That's amazing. That really is. And obviously, I, I know it was spurned on by the tragedy of losing your son in that plane crash in 2001, the Oklahoma State you know, basketball team that crashed. And I do remember that vividly uh, because I'm a huge basketball guy. And so I, I was obviously paying a lot of attention to those news stories. I don't know what it's like as a parent to lose a child, but I do understand the abruptness of death. Uh, I lost a brother uh, back in 2014. He was shot to death and, and had to deal with <clears throat> the process of going through that and also having to be the one to tell my parents, mm. you know, that happened. So what was that like for you when, how did you find out? Well, like, like anyone, like any parent or like any brother, knows it is the worst thing that can possibly happen to a, to a person. And we, Oklahoma State, they, my son was SID at Oklahoma State, and they got on a plane to leave Colorado, and they'd played in Boulder to fly back to Stillwater. And two of the planes, there were three planes, two of them landed and the other one didn't. And the other one was the one our son was on, and uh, they it, it crashed in eastern Colorado. And got a phone call um, from my mother-in-law. I was asleep, and uh, my wife and I were asleep. And she, at the time, with our voicemail, the way it worked then, she said on the voicemail, Will's plane has crashed. And uh, so then we began to make calls and find out that it was true. It is unthinkable how you're to see your life end uh, right then, instantly. And boy, oh boy, life is so precious. And I look back later and said, I have been given a gift to realize how precious life is. Uh, but our daughter-in-law, Will's widow, our son's widow, said, yeah, but we paid too big a price for that gift. Um, I also had a premonition and a dream that, that something bad was going to happen. 
And for me, the premonition and the dream that I had um, was proof that uh, God is looking out for us and has our back. And you talk about a remarkable gift to have proof that there is a God and that He's got us in His hands. And so what do you mean by that? That... Well, it, it's just that, that I know I'm, I will go through the rest of my days content with the knowledge that I didn't have that premonition in the dream by accident, yeah. that that was a message from God to prepare me for what was coming. Mm-hmm. And, and I've had a lot of people, a lot of parents have been in our situation who have said, oh, man, I never got anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> I've had a couple who said that yeah, the same thing happened to me. But that, that's just proof. It's a proof of the eternal truth. And you, you know, you either have to ha- you either have to have it as a as a, as a, a per- something that happened to you personally yeah. that proves it, or you have to learn it from reading the Bible or listening to your pastor, or both. And I happen to get both. And I don't particularly like talking about religion. I don't. I, don't, I think you live your religion rather than talking about it. That's right. But the gift that I got is just too awesome not to share it. Did that help you obviously get through yeah. the pain? Oh yeah. And, and nothing really helps, but, yeah. but as, as time goes by, you know, as, as the pain begins to lessen and there will be, this has happened to a parent while we've been talking today on this podcast, it has happened to more than one parent in this country and the world. And they don't realize what a path they're starting on. And it is certainly is a journey to to healing and to I don't even like the word healing um, because you don't really heal you, you just move on and you learn to live with the new world that you have and I wrote a book about the first cross country bicycle ride which has put me in touch with other parents who have been in the same situation and I always say just realize you're not alone you're not the only ones this has happened to because at the time you think you are. Yeah. And also there's people that can help you, that want to help you and reach out to them. Uh, we talked about the three F's, our faith, our family, and our friends that got us, got us through what we have. And then I added a G later on, grandchildren, because I, <laughs> I have three of them that I just love and cherish dearly. So, yeah. We, we, but we, we, got, we, got, a, we got a wonderful gift in the, fa- in the time of this horrible tragedy. And the gift that that said that that it, that convinces me that there is an afterlife and that there is a God and He's He's got us He's yeah. got us in His hands. He definitely does. I didn't come into my faith until I was thirty six, thirty seven years old. So it's only been about ten, eleven years, but it has changed my life from that perspective. And it obviously it. To your point, it helped me tremendously in 2014 when I lost my yeah, brother. And you know, you know, same as me, the, the worst thing that's going to happen in your life has already happened. And that changes your perspective on everything. It definitely does, for sure. Now, did your wife feel the same way? Yeah, and she did in many ways. Everyone heals in different ways. Yeah. You, you saw that, I know. Yes. And, and again, there's that word healing. But everyone deals with grief in different ways. Yeah. And she was a lot slower. She still struggles more than I do. And that's fine. That just everybody's different. They are. And good grief, don't expect everybody to be the same as you. They're not, they're not going to be. 
uh, viva la difference. Ch- cherish, <laughs> cherish the way they're different. Yes. So how therapeutic was the bike ride for you then? Well, the bike ride, I, 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 rode, I did ride across the country from Los Angeles to Savannah, 36 days, about 2,700 miles. And so roughly it came out to about 90 miles a day. And I, I didn't find the therapy. I mean, I loved it. I had a great time on the bike ride. Were there days that I was sick of it? And I bet and so. Thought, what am I doing? <laughs> Particularly in Alabama and Georgia in August. You know, it was hot. <laughs> and um, but it was therapeutic in terms that I, I, I was able to return to my endurance sports um, background. And I met so many incredible people. But the therapeutic part was came more after after the book came out, and people began to reach out to me and say, "Bill, you've you've changed my life. You've helped some people." Yeah, yeah. Never didn't do it for that reason. Just thought I had a story to tell and some adventures of people that I met along the route and and how to write, how to do this. I've I've had two or three different people who say, "I, I did it after you did it. I read your book and I thought I can do that. I can I can take time off and go ride my bike across the country." And uh, that man, that's really cool. I'm fascinated how you did it, though. I mean, just the logistics. How did you plan this? Well, first of all, I was I was really fit for my for my marathon <laughs> that days. That helps a whole bunch. Don't don't do this if you're not fit. To everybody listening to the podcast, I'm telling you, don't do it if you're not fit because you're not going to make it. Um, but I, I'm a map person. I love maps, and so we sat down on on our kitchen table with a with an atlas, just going through the states. I knew where I was going to start, and a person, a friend of mine in Atlanta had said, hey, try Tybee Island as a place to finish, and just really connected the dots, I tried to stay off the interstates, had it all planned out where I was going to spend every night across the country. I'm also a planner, kind of a nerdy, write things down. And keep well, that's living. very smart on this type of adventure. Yeah, and so um, there were days when I couldn't make it all the way, when I'd get tired. And, and we'd want to have to stop like 10 miles out of town or whatever. And my wife would come back, come out there and pick me up. Then the next morning, she'd drive me back out there and I would start at the same intersection or by the same bar. So there was no cheating. There was no cheating because I thought, <laughs> I want to do this once and I'm going to do every single inch of it. So, yeah, I had it all planned out. And there, were, there was a place in Alabama where there was a bridge out. And I'm headed this way. And these two ladies in a little town, Jake in Alabama. And they said, you can't go there because the bridge is out. And um, I, walked, I, I rode down and looked at it, and it was out. There was a small path that you could maybe walk across of this river, but I wasn't going to do that. So I had a 17-mile detour. Oh, good grief. Um, but, yeah, it was a great adventure. What was your favorite memory of it? Oh, my goodness. I met a guy in McRae, Georgia, who was selling peaches by the side of the road. Steve was his name, and he must have weighed 350 pounds. <laughs> and I'd never, I hadn't had a peach, and I stopped, and it was really hot that morning. And he, he, I said, how much for a peach? And he gave me a free peach. And we talked about life and everything and just his selling peaches and what I was up to on this bike ride. And I'll never forget old Steve. I haven't... Uh, I did hear. I heard. I heard from one person that I met in in Texas on the bike ride who read the book and discovered that she was in the book. Uh, Steve's in the book, but he, he's never contacted me. <laughs> but yeah, just the people. Of course. And I lived in Savannah for seven years. <laughs> so, what year did you end up in Tybee? What yeah, year was, it was that? Two thousand one. So I rode to, from Pooler across. Uh, 
can't remember the other suburbs, but they sent if someone the, someone told a TV station about it. So they sent the helicopter out to t- to uh, shoot me, and uh, also gave me a police escort riding into Savannah. So I didn't realize that the traffic I would experience in Savannah. That I'd ridden through Jackson, Mississippi. That was the only other large town I rode through. But I had a police escort who took me to the Hyatt where I spent the night in Savannah. And then the next morning I rode out to Tybee Island. That's fantastic. Were you ever scared in terms of just road, vehicular traffic? No, I had one guy in East, uh, Western Alabama who, who was in a pickup truck and rode you know, I'm going this way, and so he's coming toward me. And he crossed some center line over toward me, and he yelled out some profanity out the window. <laughs> but never, I, I, I did have a guy in Mississippi who said uh, he wanted to take me around and show me the sights. And uh, he said, you got a gun? You carrying a gun? And I said, no, I don't know how to use a gun. And uh, so I, I said, no, thank you. I don't, I don't, need, to, I don't need to do that. But no, every, everywhere was great. Yeah. And it, it, this was 2001, as I said. Times have changed for cross-country bicycle riders because of the cell phone and drivers using cell phones and not paying attention to what they're doing. It'd be more dangerous to do it now than when I I would did. imagine so. Yeah. But I would start early in the morning, start like 5 a.m., and I'd try to finish by 1 or 2. So I was never out, you know, at a time when bad guys are out. Bad, bad guys are not, they're not, <laughs> they're not out that years. early. They're That's not, right. they're just not. No injuries or anything? No injuries, no nothing. That's amazing. No, and only rained a few drops on me all the way across the country. Yeah, so it was I'm, hot. I'm still fascinated by that. Now, were you working at the time? Did you just take yeah, time off? I did. I was working at the NCA, so I combined vacation, and then I requested an unpaid leave, and everybody was so nice to us. Oh. They were trying to help us get our lives back together. The bike ride was seven months after the plane crash. So um, the NCA people said, you know, we don't usually give unpaid leaves, but they gave me one for the bike ride. Although I had to leave the bike ride to come back to a um, seminar for first and second round hosts uh, and then also for a meeting of the NCA basketball committee. So I left the route twice to go back. Um, yeah, the NCA people were very nice. People were so thoughtful and nice, just like you experienced. Yeah. People don't know what to say. They know they don't know what to do. That's right. And of course, what I've learned, and probably you too, what you learn is, you just say, "Hey, I care. I'm so sorry that's this right. happened." Yeah. And that that's that's plenty. That is plenty. Yes. And that and that that sums it up. Yeah. W- without a doubt. I didn't really like God needed an SID or God needed a trombone player, so He reached out and got Will. I didn't care. <laughs> I didn't really care for that. I just I just needed. Hey, I care. I'm with you. Of course. And our coaches were great. Barry was great. Barry Switzer was great. Yeah. Mike Krzyzewski was great. Roy Williams was great. Bob Huggins, Lute Olson. I could just go down through. Sounds like a lot of people reached out. The list of people that reached out. And, and Steve Owens had lost his son. The Heisman Trophy winner had lost yeah. his son. And he called me and said, Bill, we're in a club that no one else wants to join. I know it. That's right. Yeah. And it, it, it's always right under the surface. And that doesn't go away. It's just the way it is. And I don't think you want it to go away. You don't want the memory of your you memory don't. of your brother That's right. to go away. No. Um, we have a, our Will was our, our our son, and now we have a grandson a grandson named Will, and he looks a lot and acts a lot like his uncle did. And uh, yeah, it just you you you're so blessed by the people around you. That's what carries you through. And there's people and many, many, many people in college football who don't know that this happened to us. 
I, I think there's probably a few that I've even worked with that don't know. Okay. And that's okay. Well, I appreciate you sharing because uh, I, I know that does help at times as well. And just knowing that there are people that do care. Yeah. Yeah, there definitely are. What has been the difference then in working on the college basketball side versus the college football <laughs> side? Because <laughs> you've yeah. done both in, in well, terms of tournaments. Yeah, I'm, I'm the luckiest guy I know because I got to direct the best event in college basketball. <laughs> and now I get to direct the best event in college football. I can't imagine anything better happening to a human being these days. I'm telling you, it's absolutely, I'm yeah. so jealous that it's, you get to be a, able to experience It's a dream come, come true because of my passion for college football dating back to my, my youth and, of course, came up in the business as a basketball guy. So I'm, I'm just very, very lucky. There are way more similarities than there are differences. Um, in what way? Well, the committee operation the committee, you know, is, is a committee of experts we have in football, we had in basketball. We have a benefit, I think, from having outsiders on our committee. And by outsiders, I mean people who are not employed as athletic directors or conference commissioners. You know, we have the retired coaches and the retired players. And, and we had Condoleezza Rice and, and, and Mike Gould, the former superintendent of the Air Force Academy. So they give us a, a nice perspective. Yeah. That's a big difference. And football is just, it's football. And there's, the, and for all of my love for college basketball and Cameron Indoor Stadium and Allen Fieldhouse and all the places I've been blessed to go and visit, football's just, it's just elevated. The, the passion, there's more people, the pageantry. Right. Um, I wouldn't change anything about college basketball, uh, but college football is, is really really awesome. It seems that college it's, it's football on a, it's on is a different plane. the fabric of America. Yeah, it's on, a, it's on a different plane. It really does. And now, I don't mean that to demean basketball at all. I mean, I love the game. This year will be my 41st consecutive Final Four to attend. Wow. So I'm very, very passionate about basketball, and I have so many friends in that sport. Uh, Terry Holland, my friend, the former coach at Virginia, of oh, course, yes. when, he knew, when he heard I was going to football, he said, Bill, you, you're going to the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> but so I love both of those. I love both of the sports so much, and I'm so blessed to have been able to work in both of them. Now, so for the college football committee, is when you are inviting these people to be on the committee, is that something that you personally are doing, or how is how are they being identified? They're identified by the conference commissioners. And I have a list of people that I am prepared to recommend that the commissioners consider, which they might consider some of the ones on my list, or they might consider some that they bring up themselves. Uh, but they are the ones who actually make the choices. And then I call the people to say, I would like to invite you to participate in this committee. So you can share the good news. Yeah, and they're overjoyed. They're just thrilled. And being able to give something back to the game, you know, Tom Osborne, Frank Beamer, Ken Hatfield, um, are they're all such bright, dedicated people who know this game better than you or I ever will know it, and for whom the game has been a phenomenal gift and started them on the path to life and carried them on a path to life that yeah. they're now at the end of, and they would they are honored to be able to give something back. 
I uh, felt the same way about Bobby Johnson. Just was delighted to be invited. He said, I had no idea who you were or why you were, why you were calling me. And he's now gone off the committee. Of course, they, they had served three-year terms, and then they rotate off. But the, you make friendships in a room like that that you will have forever. Yeah. Now, how has, or I should say, what's been more transformative from, if you're looking at it from a sports information director's lens, the creation of the internet or social media? <laughs> oh man, social media has changed everything and not in a good way, not necessarily. There are very good parts about it. You know, you can stay in touch with your high school teammate with the guy that rebounded your missed shots. Although I don't think you <laughs> yes, missed many no, shots. I missed plenty I of shots. I know you didn't miss many shots. <laughs> there was plenty. <laughs> so so that, that's the beauty of it. And having the world at your fingertips, if you don't know how to spell Waxahachie, you know, you, you, can, you can Google it and figure it out. So there's lots of benefits. But to me, social media, the, the effect that social media has had on the regular media in this country is a tragedy. And the demise of... Um, not demise, but the erosion of the number of, of, of uh, newspapers, radio stations, and TV stations to, to keep us informed is a tra- is tragedy. Now with the internet that everybody has their own newspaper, but you can't believe necessarily what they're writing. And with a newspaper, you knew that, that if it was a reputable paper, they, they, they had at least two sources. And so I'm, I'm distraught about the demise of uh, newspapers in this country uh, and brought on by social media. And, and the other part of it is that social media is taking advertising away, that you don't have to, if you're the clothing store, you don't have to buy an ad in the, in the, the Linden Gazette. Right. Instead, you can, you can go directly to your customers. So the customers benefit from it. Um, but that, that's the biggest difference. And, and the anonymity of social media is, is I don't want to say devastating, but it's overwhelming that people can go on there and say, Rich robbed a bank last night and, you know, he needs to be arrested. It's not true. The person said it anonymously, so you can't even find the person. That's right. Stop that. It's awful. Uh, The way that coaches and players, particularly players, young people, 18, 19, 20-year-old people, are treated by social media sometimes is awful. it's, 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 It goes against the fabric of our society, frankly. Uh, but it is what it is. And so all of us in our business have learned to say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm going to tell my story, but I'm going to make darn sure I'm telling the truth. That's right. So you can hear it from the source. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now, what about uh, words of wisdom? I mean, you've shared some wisdom already just that you've uh, talked about earlier, but have there been any phrases or quotes or mottos or just life advice that has meant a lot to you? Oh man, so so many things. I'm, let me just boil it down. To, <laughs> let me boil it down if I can. The old golden rule that we learned in Sunday school in about the third grade: treat people the way you want to be treated. If you're looking for one message in life, that's it. Just treat everybody the way you want people to treat you. Sometimes the <laughs> the wisest words are the most simplest oh, ones. Oh, we make right? things too complicated, don't we? Just keep it simple. <laughs> yes, we do. Just remember the golden rule, man. <laughs> That's right. Well, Bill, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate it. Again, it's been an honor. It's been cool. Thank you. Thank you. 
Goals and targets that we set for ourselves will many times overshadow the true gifts that we receive in life. And when you have the ability, though, to have a career in something that you love, where you feel like you're the luckiest person, as Bill has in his career, then you will truly understand the power of receiving a true gift, even when those gifts have nothing to do with your career at all. Now that finishes episode 107, and you can find more of our content by visiting our Rich Take on Sports Facebook page and YouTube channel, where you can easily subscribe. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Takes Sports. Thanks for listening.